Hello and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for today, Wednesday, November the 9th. My name is Tom Hollingsworth and we are back with another great lineup of news stories across the whole enterprise IT space. And joining me is a uh, it's an old co-host. It's been forever since we've uh, we've seen him here on the rundown. That, of course, is the main man, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome back to the rundown. You can just call me the prodigal son if you want here, Tom. It's nice to be back. Well, we've uh, we've officially adopted you back into the rundown family, Stephen, because it, of course, it is National World Adoption Day, actually. So all over the world, adopt a friend, adopt a co-host, and adopt some of the great news that we've got coming your way. Uh, we're actually going to kick off the stories this week uh, with a big launch announcement. That would be from our friends over at HPE because they have launched their latest generation of servers. This would be the 11th generation of hardware, and it's focused on a whole lot of hot workloads. You know, some of your old favorites like AI, cloud native apps virtualization, and a lot of other cool stuff. One of the big features that they are touting in this release is the fact that they're going to be using their ILO remote management system to verify and authenticate all hardware in the system through a secured route of trust to try to alleviate some of those um, supply chain attacks that we've been hearing about in the news. There's also another little note in the release, which we've linked in the show notes, that I thought was really interesting. If you're going to order a Gen 11 server, you can choose from AMD Epic as well as Ampere. Now, if you'll notice in that drop-down list, there was one notable name missing. You cannot order a Gen 11 system with an Intel CPU today, as of the recording of this episode. Stephen, we've been following a lot of the things that have been going on in the server space, specifically around the release of new hardware. Is AMD and uh, Ampere able to capitalize on the fact that Sapphire Rapids hasn't shipped yet by partnering with companies like HPE to bring these new servers to market now? Well, first of all, uh, let's zoom in on, on on what this means. Yeah, sorry, HPE. We're going to talk about <laughs> Intel and, and AMD here for a minute. Um, yeah, so, so the, the Gen 11 server announcement was notable to me in that it specifically says that it's going to be available with the fourth generation AMD Epic and Intel fourth generation Xeon uh, processors which is notable because neither of those have been announced yet. In fact, I'm not sure <laughs> what happened here, but literally HPE is pre-announcing two chips that haven't been announced yet uh, for two of the biggest chip companies in the world. Um, and specifically, if you look, read the, the news release, it says that uh, the AMD uh, Epic fourth generation chips, uh, codenamed Genoa, are going to be available um, November 10th. Well, that's interesting. Uh, we haven't heard that yet. Uh, I guess uh, I guess they're going to be announced tomorrow. Uh, we'll see. Uh, so yeah, so AMD is there uh, with their next generation Epic and um, uh, HPE ProLiant uh, Gen 11 is going to use them. I imagine that uh, Dell and Lenovo are going to be right there too, and as well as all the other uh, brands making enterprise servers. Um, Intel Sapphire Rapids, I mean, it is mentioned in here. Uh, they say the fourth generation Xeon is going to be a part of the platform. Um, I guess they weren't ready to break the embargo on Intel's release date, but um, I, hint, it sounds like it's coming real soon. Uh, the uh, Ampere one is interesting as well. So we've seen a little bit of Ampere here. We've covered this on the rundown. Again, the, these are wonderful uh, server systems that use uh, the uh, ARM uh, CPU cores uh, under license. Uh, they have really, really been tremendous. Uh, I will point out that they're not just using the Ampere Ultra, they're using the Ultra Max, which is the new uh, many, many core uh, Ampere platform. 
which again is, is really cool to see. Now that's not gonna be available across the line. It's not gonna be available in like every HPE server. They're making a server, as far as I can read here, uh, the RL300 with the uh, Ultra and Ultra Max, uh, which, is, which is cool. Um, and uh, that is of course a follow on to another HPE Ultra based server that they had previously. So yeah, um, Gen 11 uh, ProLiant is here. Uh, those of us in the server industry just love this this uh, hardware platform. Uh, I have a Gen 10 server uh, running here in the office uh, as a uh, file server. Um, it's really well designed. Uh, they're really, really solid. Uh, ILO is great. Um, looking forward to seeing ILO 6. I will point out too, as you mentioned, uh, they've got a TPM trusted platform module in there to verify in uh, system state and uh, secure boot. Another thing they're doing here is a couple of years ago, they announced a uh, trusted supply chain initiative, which would um, basically allow uh, more sensitive customers to make sure that the uh, server components were supplied by trusted partners and perhaps even uh, manufactured in specific locations. Uh, that's being extended as well to this new generation of ProLiant. And I think that that also tells us a little bit about HPE's customer base, that they value that. Now, you can only go so much with that, of course, because a lot of components are sourced globally. But frankly, uh, HPE is making an effort here to make sure that things are supplied from trusted suppliers and that aren't compromised in the supply chain. And, and that's really great. Uh, of course, there's a GreenLake angle as well, um, as we expect. I mean, GreenLake is the, the leading pay-as-you-go consumption model out there for enterprise servers. And um, you know, I'm not surprised to see that you'll be able to buy these things as GreenLake. But overall, I, I've got to say, um, it's, it's a great announcement. It's the kind of announcement that we would have been just bowled over with before the advent of, well, everything else that's going in enterprise tech. Uh, but I think that HPE deserves a pat on the back for doing a nice job uh, revving the uh, impressive, already impressive, ProLiant servers. And as for Sapphire Rapids, um, I don't have any embargoes to break either, but I will say um, if HPE is saying they're going to be available in this platform, I bet they're coming real soon. So we'll see. Tom, speaking of supply chains, the SolarWinds supply chain story is still going strong. Uh, news broke this week that the monitoring giant has finally settled a shareholder lawsuit. The suit uh, ended up costing $26 million and alleged that SolarWinds misled them about their security posture in advance of the cyber attack that saw their so software being compromised. The original intrusion happened back in 2019 and the shareholder suit was filed in January of 2021, shortly after the disclosure of the breach. SolarWinds also said that they've received notice from the SEC that they face future enforcement actions, which is probably means fines. Tom, uh, are we finally getting the point of putting this whole SolarWinds thing behind us? Boy, I hope so. But I think we even said this when the news broke back in December of 2020, that this was a story that we were going to be covering on the rundown for quite a while. Now, you're probably sitting here thinking to yourself, wow, SolarWinds. Wow, I haven't heard from them in a while. And yes, that's by design. SolarWinds went very quiet. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of mention of what was going on. I did get a few emails here and there, um, very much focused on, um, well, let's call it what it is, a little bit of PR, a little bit of uh, rehabbing their image a bit, trying to uh, help them you know, come out with a better look, look than they'd had <clears throat> prior to everything that happened. But as we as adults know, it's not over until we have to pay the bills. 
And uh, this lawsuit was just the first of many bills that I'm sure that SolarWinds is going to have to pay. Um, of course, you want to have some confidence in your shareholders and $26 million and uh, a beautiful uh, written notice that they didn't do anything wrong. There's no fault. Uh, is a great way to start that. However, uh, yeah, the SEC is probably not going to be very kind to them. Uh, we understand that this is a complicated attack. We understand that they were specifically targeted for a number of reasons and that this was very, very well executed. Um, I would hazard a guess that we probably won't see another attack this well executed for a number of years, specifically because when you look at the recent spate of ransomware and uh, criminal organizations and, and even nation states that have been doing all of this attacking, um, they're very much focused on getting in, getting paid and getting out. This very much was designed to create a foothold in a large array of companies. Maybe the Kaseya attack last year was about the, you know, about that level. But if it hadn't have been for the uh, efforts of FireEye and Mandiant, we may never have known, or we may not have known until the middle of last year. And could you imagine how many more systems might have been infected by then? So while on the one hand, <clears throat> I am happy that SolarWinds was able to get this lawsuit settled, this is only the beginning of their problems. And as we've seen over the years, especially when you have the government involved in criminal proceedings, this could take another couple of years before everything is all settled. You've got to go through discovery. There has to be interviews. There has to be a lot of back and forth. There's going to be lots of pretrial motions. There's going to be a lot of negotiating here. And the question is going to come down to, does the SEC feel that punishing solar winds is going to prevent the kinds of um, gregarious issues with security that you would expect to see in companies? Do you think basically this will serve as a warning or will people just kind of go, eh, won't ever happen to me? Or worse yet, oh, that fine, that was nothing. I spend more than that on firewalls in a year. So I don't know how the government's going to come down on this. And and hopefully they come down on the side of encouraging SolarWinds to be better and telling other people not to let this happen to them. Because I'd hate to see a company like SolarWinds basically get put out of business by an SEC fine, which thankfully hasn't happened in recent memory. But you never know. There's always that kind of um, chance on the horizon for that to happen. All right, Stephen, um, Microsoft has found itself in the crosshairs of a proposed class action lawsuit over AI. Um, specifically, the lawsuit is looking at the use of this maligned tool on GitHub referred to as Copilot. Now, that software, which uses AI to help programmers write better code, has been accused of just wholesale stealing of copyrighted code throughout the entire website. Uh, there's been research that's been done by a group of people that have found that the program effectively lifted and replicated entire blocks of code, not just a few uh, config lines, but large stanzas of code without giving any kind of attribution to the original authors or the companies that owned that code. The lawsuit, which is focused around not only the AI implications of what Copilot can do, but how Microsoft and GitHub are using it could change the face of how that AI can be used in the future for things like virtual assistants to be able to offer support. And especially when you consider that most of the code on GitHub is publicly available so people could just go out and look at it if they wanted. And this is just a program doing it for them. Now, Stephen, you've done a lot of work with the applications and the implications of what AI can mean for us. Is this going to be something that Microsoft is going to find themselves in hot water about? And how could this impact the greater uh, industry when it comes to what we're what we can can't allow AI to do. This is a really interesting uh, situation because uh, on the one hand, 
you know, we don't want to, I guess it's probably stretching the word a little bit, but use prior restraint against technology that uh, can otherwise be beneficial. But on the other hand, uh, this is pretty blatant. So I, I want to step back here from, for a second from the specifics of the co-pilot lawsuit, not only because, you know, I don't know the specifics of this lawsuit any more than anyone else reading the press coverage does, but uh, think about it, uh, sort of how these AI systems uh, work, whether it's this co-pilot or stable diffusion or GPT-3. There have been a lot of them that are that function as generators, essentially, that you you give it a prompt, you, you start work, and then it sort of completes some of the work in a way that it thinks that you want it to complete the work, whether it is generating an image, generating text, or in this case, generating software code. That's a really interesting situation because if you think about what it's doing, the AI engine doesn't actually understand anything. I mean, that's not how AI works. In fact, when we were doing uh, you know three seasons of utilizing AI, this is one of those things that came up again and again. Uh, AI is sort of a black box that does what it is trained to do, but doesn't have any fundamental understanding. You know, your car that's uh, keeping in the lanes of the road doesn't know what lanes or roads are. If it doesn't hit a bicyclist, it's not because it thinks it's a bicyclist. It's because it was trained to respond to inputs and outputs in that way. I guess you could get philosophical and say that we humans are exactly the same way. But really, uh, when it comes to things like writing uh, software code or producing text or producing images or videos or whatever, what it's really doing is parroting uh, what it's seen as the input. And that's really what we're experiencing here, at least from my read of this. So essentially, the, the co-pilot software, you know, you start writing something and it suggests, hey, do you mean this function? Do you mean that function? Uh, and in many cases, it doesn't really draw any kind of distinction between uh, spitting out sort of a standard generic function as specified maybe in the software documentation or uh, you know, in textbooks even, or a specific code written by a specific person and posted on something like GitHub. Now, a real software developer would say, oh, I'm copying and pasting from GitHub, which is a famous tradition. So I had better you know, tweak it and tune it a little bit and change the names of the functions and maybe figure out a way to make it my own instead of just blatantly pasting it. I don't know, maybe they do blatantly paste it, but, but this system doesn't care. It, it's going to just blatantly paste it. And that's what we are dealing with here. You know, you look at the examples and it's pretty obvious that this was somebody's code. And, and since it has been defined since the 1970s that computer programs are protected by uh, copyrights, that's illegal. No two ways about it. It's the same with GPT-3 text generation. It's the same with uh, stable diffusion uh, image generation. If the image that it spits out looks fundamentally the same as somebody's copyright protected image, then it's copyright infringement. No, no matter that it's uh, been you know, GPL'd or that it's been posted to GitHub for all to see, uh, there's a difference between uh, keeping something secret and giving up your copyright on it. And frankly, I think that the way that this is gonna get resolved uh, if I wanted to take a guess, is uh, there's going to be some money changing hands because lawyers. But I also think that what we're going to see is maybe a new wave of AI systems that implement, frankly, obfuscation code that compare the output with a library of potential inputs. And if it matches exactly, 
go in there and fudge it around a little bit until it's a little bit different from a copyright perspective. Is that a good solution? Uh, no, but it's a legal one, in my opinion, as a non-lawyer. So we'll see, we'll see where this goes. But I do think that this has uh, some relevance and, and it makes a lot of sense. And frankly, you know, I kind of am on the side of the lawyers here, even though that pains me to say it. Tom, the November Patch Tuesday event from Microsoft was filled with some important uh, fixes. Six zero-day exploits were listed in the notes, two of which were high-priority exchange patches that were actively being exploited. Microsoft was previously uh, stated to, that the biggest exploit in exchange has only been the work of a single threat actor, but they made sure to include patches to prevent that one from spreading. Another patch came from a notification of a Google group that tracks nation-state actors using exploits against their enemies. Tom, uh, what's going on here this month? It's one of those things where you, you ask yourself, do I want to know that I'm vulnerable or would I rather pretend that I'm not? Um, Microsoft is basically coming out and admitting there are some big zero-day exploits that are going on out there. And, and yes, a lot of them revolve around uh, Exchange because Exchange has some flaws. I'm sure you've probably heard it called Proxy Not Shell. Uh, that's the one that has infected uh, Shodan. What did it say? There were like over 200,000 servers that were potentially impacted by this. So Microsoft is effectively saying, we've got to do something about this. So that's what they're hoping to do is to get those things patched. And yeah, look, I get it. You're probably a little bit worried. But remember that out of all of those, there was like something like almost 60 vulnerabilities that were patched in this patch Tuesday. Um, yeah, six of them were zero days. But the important thing to think about here is um, one of the, the things that you hear a lot in the security community is that zero days are very, very critical for attackers because they are unknown problems that can be exploited in the future. But as soon as you start exploiting them, someone will know what's going on and they'll be able to patch it. So think of them like the ace in the hole. The more zero days that get burned in this fashion, the more of them that have to be piled together to actually breach a system, the better, because it means that we're, we're getting through them. Um, any, any kind of um, vulnerability or exploitable bug in a program code that lays dormant for months or years is a huge liability. Think of it from a risk perspective. I would rather know that I'm vulnerable now and that I need to patch as opposed to finding out six months from now that I really should have patched this. So I'm really happy to see that this is happening. And the other thing that you mentioned is uh, one of those exploits that was being that was found by the Google team that kind of goes out and they monitor what nation states are doing. Um, there's a pretty reasonable chance that the largest possessors of zero day exploits right now are nation states and intelligence services because they're using them to collect surreptitious intelligence from systems. So for Google to have put together a team to track that and for them to be able to have found these is a massive win for everybody because the faster we can get those patched the less likely we are to find ourselves in the kinds of cyber warfare that we've unfortunately seen increasing quite a bit in 2022 and i think that ultimately it's going to make us all safer so yes go out patch your stuff make sure that you have all the stuff installed um you know it's a really good time to start analyzing why you're using the systems that you are especially if you are constantly patching the same systems hint hint exchange um, and see if there's any way that you can uh, find better solutions that don't need to be patched every few months. All right, Stephen, we've already mentioned Intel in the rundown, but we have a story that's specifically around some of the things that have been going on there. Um, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but uh, they're going to be releasing their fourth generation Xeon CPU, uh, which is codenamed Sapphire Rapids. They're going to have high bandwidth memory for HPC. 
yeah, it's not quite ready yet. <laughs> the company finally admitted at Supercomputing 22 that along, although Sapphire Rapid CPUs and Ponte Vecchio GPUs are already appearing, uh, the HBM-equipped Max platform won't be widely available for another quarter. Um, Intel had planned to use the Atom-based Xeon Phi for Argon's Aurora, but that new configuration that it uses uh, the so-called Max CPUs instead. Um, it's still on the way. Stephen, what does this mean for the wider use of next-generation Intel gear? Yeah, those of us who aren't uh, privy to secret uh, information, uh, like me, uh, have to kind of read the tea leaves here to try to figure out what's going on at big companies like Intel. Um, now, I don't know if you, again, Sapphire Rapids, uh, people have, have heard of this thing, right? I mean, this is the fourth generation Xeon CPU platform. We know that. Uh, Ponte Vecchio, this is something that's been talked about quite a lot um, with, uh, in, in public, uh, as, as has Sapphire, Sapphire Rapids, frankly. And, um, and, and we know quite a lot about them. Uh, so the Pontevecchio is basically a tile-based system that mi mixes in next-generation x86 cores and the XE uh, GPU cores uh, in a tile-based architecture, a, a massive tile-based architecture in the case of these Max chips, in order to deliver a, sort of a, a hybrid compute unit that has CPU and GPU on the same, on the same chip. This is the new direction for the Argon Aurora supercomputer. Uh, they had originally intended, as, a, as you mentioned, to use the Atom-based Xeon Phi, uh, Knight's Hill, Knight's Landing architecture there, which would have effectively created a massive, massive set of, um, of little x86 Atom cores as a supercomputer. Uh, that was pretty much abandoned because basically the entire industry abandoned that approach once it became clear that GPU... Uh, in a hybrid uh, model with CPU was a better way to go. So we've seen, for example, uh, NVIDIA climbing the charts in HPC. We've seen NVIDIA's uh, Grace and Grace Hopper and um, now uh, Ada Lovelace architecture uh, being announced. And, and in all these cases, it's a hybrid architecture with CPU plus GPU. Intel uh, is aggressively, aggressively moving in there with these, with the Argon Aurora supercomputer, and um, you know, it, it, this was an interesting situation because, although you know they they have this contract to develop this computer, they admitted you know that that basically the original one just never you know never got built, never never got out of the starting gates because it just wasn't a good idea, I guess, uh, in light of modern architecture. Instead, they're building this new one. Uh, the the tea leaves that I'm reading here, though, result re re relate to the dates, so. Again, at, at supercomputing, they're they're talking about this. They're talking about the uh, chips being available soon. They're talking about um, provisioning Argon Aurora with all the Pontevecchio uh, chips that they can get, uh, and that that's going to happen, you know, next quarter. Which suggests to me that Sapphire Sapphire Rapids, the fourth generation Xeon, and all the rest of the next generation Intel stuff is probably coming on that timeline as well. Uh, the article that we were linking here from the next platform suggests that perhaps January 10th is the date even, uh, but we'll see. Um, maybe that's only the max chips with the high bandwidth memory. Maybe the uh, wider release of Sapphire Rapids comes on a different date. Uh, we don't know. Uh, another thing that's interesting here, though, is that it suggests that Intel is having some yield issues with this uh, tile-based chip architecture. And that's not surprising. This is a pretty aggressive move for them. The uh, tile-based uh, Pontevecchio chips actually use 
uh, EMIB 2.5D and Favaro's 3D chip interconnects. Uh, they combine uh, the products of TSMC and Intel all on the same CPU. This is wild advanced stuff. And again, if you read the article, you'll see that they're suggesting that the yield on these is fairly small, perhaps even as low as 10%. But that being said, this is Intel's path. This is the direction that they've talked about. You know, if you look at anything from, from laptop chips all the way up to HPC chips, tile-based is where they're going. Basically, they're betting the company. And we've talked about this with the Intel fab uh, uh, concepts as well. They need to get this working. This is their way of piloting and prototyping it. And even with 10% yields, I guess they'll have a prototype and they'll learn a heck of a lot about rolling this stuff out. So really, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like the uh, overall, the, the supercomputing news with Intel and Ponte Vecchio and Sapphire Rapids and HBM and the Max series and all that kind of stuff, it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's understandable. Um, and, and finally, it really kind of is exciting to think that we're just about to get a completely different uh, processor uh, approach with tiles with mixing hybrid uh, CPU and GPU and maybe XPU uh, and accelerators and IO and all that on the same chip. And, you know, it's, it's really happening. It's just a bit of a mountain to climb, as Intel admitted. All right. Well, Stephen, we do have some breaking news that was literally just released. And uh, I know that it's something you're definitely going to want to cover. Uh, because today we saw the release of the ML Commons results of their training, HPC, and tiny benchmark suites. Um, every company in the machine learning space found something here that they want to talk about. Um, Intel was showing Sapphire Rapids and Habana Gaudi 2. NVIDIA was showing off the H100. And ARM's tiny inferencing results really shined. But even though they were happy about those things... Not everyone was happy because some of the players are complaining that these tests are being gamed by a lot of the big players. Steven, you've been following this very closely. Um, what do you think about this? Well, let's start with the final point first. So I know the fine folks over at ML Commons. Uh, David Cantor was a field day delegate, and I love what they're doing. Uh, I think that they have the best, uh, the best at heart. The problem is that anytime a benchmark becomes popular, uh, anytime a benchmark becomes a differentiator for customers, it's going to be gamed. And frankly, I'm hearing from a lot of vendors, in fact, even the vendors that are doing well at these benchmarks, that there's a lot of gaming happening, uh, that, that we're getting custom, uh, custom drivers, custom software tuned for the uh, MLPerf benchmarks, and that's legal. Uh, companies uh, are uh, able to deliver a uh, hand-tuned benchmark. And in fact, that's one of the things that NVIDIA is crowing about, that their A100 is two and a half times faster than it originally was in some benchmarks because they did some work to make the thing work better. And actually, that's good, right? I mean, don't we want software tuning and, and, and so on to, to happen? And, and don't we want better software, better drivers, better optimizations and, and so on in the stack. Um, I guess the only time that you could really complain about that is if it no longer reflects uh, real world use cases. And again, I know the people behind this and I know that they want this to reflect real world use cases and they're going to continue to push to make sure 
that we don't end up with a useless benchmark, that we end up with a benchmark that shows real world use. And in fact, that's one of the things I like the most about MLPerf is because it's not just one benchmark. It's not like, you know, spec or something where it's like, you know, here's the number, that's it. It's a whole bunch of benchmarks. It's a whole bunch of tests. And frankly, the coolest thing about these announcements is that if you look at the numbers, if you look at the graphs, it's like this product does really well in this application, in this use case with this framework. This one does really well in this completely different one. We've got training, we've got HPC, and we've got tiny. Now, if you just had kind of a number, like, I don't know, a Geekbench, I'm not picking on them, but you know, you know, it's just like, how fast is the thing? It's this fast. Well, that wouldn't be really as fun. Um, you know, because frankly, the tiny ones would look really pathetic next to the HPC ones. But if you look at it in terms of what am I trying to do with, with ML and what hardware should I use for this particular application, it actually is incredibly valuable and incredibly illustrative. And it shows that there's actually a great market for all of these things. So I think it's interesting you bring up the benchmark thing, because if I went to you and I said, I want you to buy the best car. The first thing you're going to ask is, well, what do you want it to do? Do you want it to go really fast? Do you want it to be very um, uh, reliable? Do you want it to be able to haul uh, a couch? Like there's different classifications of how you want a car to perform. Um, you know, it's the old Einstein quote, if you judge a goldfish's ability to scale a tree, you'll think it's an idiot for the rest of its life. But I feel like that that's what a lot of the benchmarks do because the people who are making the purchasing decisions just want to see a big number. And so, yeah. Gaming the system. I mean, Volkswagen had uh, software in their cars that detected when it was being on a bench suite and it reduced performance to get under emissions guidelines. Uh, Samsung was specifically looking for certain uh, benchmarking suites running on the phone so that it could ramp up uh, the cores to make them run super, super fast, even though the core would never run that fast in reality. As long as there's a score to beat, people are going to beat it. I mean, I can think of, you know, firewall throughput tests. And they have to very carefully disclose the fact that those were 64-byte packets, which is something nobody would ever send in reality. But boy, it made that throughput number look really big. And so I think that, that ML Commons is doing it the right way. They're saying, don't pick based on the score, pick based on the application. Do you need it to do this? Well, then here's the benchmark that you want to use, and it shows this. But if that changes, then you need to use this one over here. Don't just assume that the thing that was really, really good at this one thing is going to be really, really good at everything. And we have to get past that mentality. And unfortunately, it means that we have to do a lot of research. And that means we have to understand what we're trying to do and not just buy the biggest or the shiniest or, unfortunately, in some cases, the cheapest. And so you're, these, the, the, the work that they're doing and the fact that they're putting out these results regularly helps people kind of chart that course. I mean... Think back to the last time that Intel, or not Intel, but Apple released a brand new device, whether it was an iPhone or a MacBook or an iPad. I can promise you it's going to be about 15 to 20% faster than the last one. And it's probably going to have about the same battery life for everything. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of where we're at with things. So let's dive in a little bit here. So first off, we got the first numbers from NVIDIA on H100. Now this is exciting. H100 is up to six and a half times faster than the original A100 was when they initially submitted it. And the reason that it's fair to com compare it to the original A100 and not this tuned two and a half times faster A100 result is because the H100 is still in preview only. 
So this is not an official result. This is a preview result. But the preview of H100 looks really good in many use cases. And that's good for NVIDIA, and it's good for, the fa for all those users of NVIDIA, because frankly, NVIDIA is really dominating the high-end ML training world with H100, and uh, a lot of supercomputers are using it, a lot of HPC systems are, are going to be using it, and we're really excited to see where that goes. So basically, they're dominating the buzz, that's kind of what I mean. But A100 is still here. And A100 still looks good. And as I said, A100 is, just keeps getting better. Now let's turn to Intel. Intel made news here with these results as well because uh, they're finally showing uh, Gaudi 2 um, workloads. And, and frankly, Gaudi 2 looks really good. So the, again, this is Havana Labs, which is a company that Intel bought. Uh, Gaudi 2 is their um, training chip. And, and it looks great. In fact, uh, Gaudi 2 is faster than A100 in BERT uh, training and is even getting close to the initial H100 previews in ResNet 50 training. This is important because it shows that Intel has a competitive offering in some of the most valuable areas of machine learning. Now, this doesn't mean that NVIDIA is done for or something. No, by any, by any stretch. What it means is that this is not a one horse race. This is a many horse race. And Gaudi 2 looks pretty good. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. We saw a preview of Gaudi 2 at AI Field Day uh, and, and it looked great. Um, and so it's nice to see that. The other thing Intel's doing here though is that they also did a preview. They did a preview of Sapphire Rapids. And you might be saying, wait, what? Sapphire Rapids is a CPU, not a GPU or an ML chip. And yet Intel is using Sapphire Rapids for training, not just for inferencing. Sapphire Rapids for training, and it actually is not terrible. So the idea here is that maybe you don't want to buy specialized hardware if you can get by with just using a CPU. And so Intel is basically demoing a pretty straightforward uh, two-processor Sapphire Rapids system uh, with you know, a pretty normal configuration. Of course, this is all pre-release stuff, but, you know, pretty normal configuration, the kind of stuff that you might buy in enterprise. And they're showing that they can do uh, DLRM training in under an hour on that pretty simple basic server. And if that's good enough for you, then basically you don't need to buy specialized hardware, and that's a win for some customers in some use cases. They're also showing that if you have maybe an eight-node cluster of those dual core or dual, dual processor, sorry, not dual core, dual, dual processor systems, you could do BERT in under an hour, which again, if that's your goal, that would be great. You can even do ResNet 50. If you've got 16 nodes, you could do ResNet 50 in under 90 minutes, which again, that's a pretty heavy uh, training uh, situation. And if, and if 90 minutes is good enough for you as a part-time training platform, then that's kind of not a bad deal considering the cost of a lot of these specialized processors. Steven, that was a great overview of, of the training part of it. But what about ML Tiny? What about the inferencing stuff? Because I think that there was something there too as well. Oh, yeah. And that's actually maybe even more exciting. I, I've been watching the, uh, the other end of the ML Perf results myself because, frankly, uh, most of the time when it comes to ML, you're not training, you're inferencing. You're just using this stuff. And there's a lot of exciting things going on with low-powered, low-end, tiny, tiny devices. And that's what uh, the uh, tiny results are all about. So 
we saw some great results uh, from companies like OctoML, um, Plumer AI, uh, ST, uh, Microelectronics, um, all using ARM Cortex processors. Uh, and, and frankly, they're not exciting compared to, you know, what you'd might get at, uh, you know, high-end uh, ML, e even inferencing chips. But, but it's interesting. It's exciting to show that the ARM Cortex processors can actually do ML inferencing on low power. And speaking of low power, I really have to call out Silicon Labs and GreenWaves. They showed accelerated, tiny, low-powered chips that were just incredible really low, low latency running these inferencing tasks. Uh, GreenWaves in particular, uh, they're showing uh, Accelerator based on the RISC-V architecture, which is uh, you know, an exciting world, different from ARM, uh, basically open licensing. And they're showing that they can do uh, ML inferencing on a, a very, very useful scale uh, to do useful tasks at very low power levels. And I'm going to be really excited to see where that goes as well. Because again, this is kind of where it it gets useful instead of sort of just the let's build a giant network of really expensive things and see how fast it can go. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's something that we're definitely going to be covering on the rundown in the future because there's a lot of, of great innovation that's being done in that space. Speaking of things that are happening in the future, we do have a couple of things coming up in the week ahead. Um, Stephen, what's the first thing that everybody should be on the lookout for? Well, supercomputing. Uh, so we mentioned this in some of the stories. Uh, supercomputing is coming to Dallas here November 13th through the 18th. Go to sc22.supercomputing.org or just follow hashtag sc22 on the Twitters and uh, you'll see a lot of exciting announcements from that one. And if you are not going to Dallas or supercomputers aren't your thing and you're a little bit more secretive, um, you can totally check out our next edition of Security Field Day, which is coming up next week, um, November 16th through the 18th in Silicon Valley. We have a great lineup of presenters. Uh, if you want to learn more, just head over to techfieldday.com and check out the list of presenters and delegates as well. We're um, very excited to be uh, bringing you that uh, latest edition of Security Field Day and rounding out 2022 with a great event. Um, we have been very thrilled to have you as our rundown audience this week, as well as throughout the year. We're super excited. For that, we have some more great episodes coming your way because the news never stops. Um, even if Stephen or I can't be here, we'll have another great co-host to jump in and share all the great things that have been going on. And if you want to follow us, make sure that you are subscribed to our podcast, whether it is on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Gestalt IT video or through your favorite podcast application of choice. Just look for the Gestalt IT rundown. We uh, try to publish Wednesday around 1230 Eastern time. Uh, so uh, make sure you have your calendar set for that great release. Uh, we will be back next week, uh, right before the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday with another great episode. And if you have any news stories that you'd like us to cover, make sure you tweet at Gestalt IT, use the hashtag rundown. And uh, if we take a look at that, we may give you credit in a future episode. But for now, for Stephen Foskett and Tom Hollingsworth, thanks for tuning in. We appreciate your patronage, and we look forward to bringing you more great news next week.